Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. Well, remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're getting close to finishing up this little book. Some of you may be thinking it won't be soon enough, but, but it's, uh, it's very practical, a very, a very practical book, but it's, it contains a lot of hard sayings. So James chapter 5 this morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 6. So if you'll follow along as I read our text, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, beginning now in verse 1, we read. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May the Lord bless this reading of his word in our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, if you attend regularly, you know that for a number of weeks, and this morning actually makes five, we've been looking at a section in James which began in chapter 4, verse 1, and runs through verse 6 of chapter 5. After Contrasting the two types of wisdom, worldly and godly, at the end of chapter 3, James has been showing us the havoc caused when the world's wisdom, rather than God's wisdom, dominates the life of believers. And this worldly wisdom, this worldliness, James tells us, manifests itself in a number of ways. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, James showed us that it manifests itself in the lust or the sinful passion and desire for pleasure and personal gratification. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James showed us how it manifests itself in speaking evil against and judging a brother or sister in Christ. In verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, which we looked at last week, James showed us that worldly wisdom also manifests itself in a self-confident, boastful, arrogant disregard of God in our planning. And this morning, James picks up the same theme once again, And here in our text, he shows us that worldly wisdom also manifests itself in an arrogant disregard of God when it comes to our resources. In other words, in a wrong view and use of our wealth. You see, your view and use of money may reveal worldliness in your heart. And these first six verses of chapter 5 are... I mean, to say that they're very strong is an understatement. I mean, they are very strong. They are, they are stinging. I mean, this, this is a serious rebuke. It's one of the strongest in the entire book. I mean, these words just fall like, like hammer blows. I mean, they're blunt and unsparing. So much so that uh, these verses are seldom preached on. It was interesting uh, in, in all of the people that I read, commentators and so forth, that I read in preparation, uh, how some of them just kind of skimmed over this section and didn't really deal with it. 
In fact, what James says here is so strong and so scathing that uh, some have argued that James had in mind people clear outside of the church. However, as one man said, sadly, the only compelling argument against understanding verses 1 to 6 as a, as a challenging call to believers would be this, if we could say that believers could not possibly behave in this way. And then he says, Albert Barnes is unfortunately correct and our experience of the church has been blissfully restricted if we have never met earnest believing Christians who have allowed financial power to turn their heads who remain blind to the fact that Christ is not Lord of their checkbook and whose worldly wealth has hardened their hearts against brothers and sisters less amply provided for. So who is James addressing here? Is he addressing wealthy Christians or is he addressing wealthy unbelievers who are outside the church? Well, one commentator said, James' address of his readers in the second person indicates he was speaking to those who would hear his letter read in the churches. James then aimed his rebuke at people who were in some way associated with the church. And so James is speaking to those in the church. And you'll remember that James, in this letter, James has already mentioned the rich in two different places. In chapter 1, he instructed the rich to rejoice in their low position by humbling themselves before God and boasting in their relationship with Christ rather than the riches of this life which are fleeting and unpredictable. So there were wealthy Christians in the church. And in the second place, James uh, referred to the rich is in chapter 2 where he, he was warning about partiality to the, to the rich who showed up at church on occasion. And these people were, were the one, the very ones who oppressed the believers, dragged them into court, and blasphemed the name of Christ. So obviously, these were wealthy unbelievers who were showing up at church on occasion. And so knowing that James is speaking to those in the church, it would appear that he has in mind all the rich, both believers and unbelievers. What he has to say is a scathing condemnation of unbelievers. And it is also a very blunt and serious warning to believers. So this passage has great value for believers because no Christian is entirely immune to the sins that James describes here. I mean, believers are also tempted to love money and to hoard it and to, and to use whatever riches they have in self-indulgent ways. And so everyone, all of us need James Warnings to, to help us grapple with our own attitude and, and desires when it comes to wealth. Because wealth can either be a great blessing and, and a benefit to others, or it can be a great snare. And it can lead to great sin and even to eternal condemnation. And before we jump into our text, I, I want to say at the outset that the Word of God does not condemn wealth or people with wealth. I mean, there were a number of believers in the Bible who were wealthy. Abraham, Job, David, uh, to name a few in the New Testament, Philemon, Joseph of Arimathea, and Lydia. In fact, everyone, we'd have to say that everyone possesses wealth and material goods to one degree or another. But the point is, the Bible does not condemn wealth or people with, with wealth. What the Bible does warn about and what the Bible does condemn is the love of money and the misuse of wealth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul, Paul said this to Timothy, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And in answer to a question just before the parable of the rich fool, Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And then later in that same chapter, in verse 34, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you could also, I mean, conversely, it would be true where your heart is. What you really love is where your treasure is going to be. On one occasion, Jesus referred to money as unrighteous wealth. Because it's often used sinfully. And at the end of that section in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 13, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One man said that money is like a loaded gun. It can be extremely useful in certain situations, but you've got to use it carefully or you may hurt others and yourself. Or he said, to use another analogy, money is like fire. Used properly and under control, fire is a helpful tool. But if it is used carefully or with evil intent, it can become a powerful force that destroys both property and life. And that is so very true. So very, very true. In the human heart, which is so prone to selfishness, greed, and self-indulgence, is very quickly, or can be very quickly, corrupted by money. And that's why after the rich young ruler walked away from following Jesus, our Lord said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I mean, it is impossible for someone who trusts in riches to get into the kingdom of heaven. One man said, Material possessions tend to focus one's thoughts and interests on the world only. Wealth gradually enslaves those who are attached to it and perverts their values. The more we have, the easier it is to be possessed by our possessions, our comforts, and our recreations. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It's impossible for someone who trusts in riches to get into heaven. Nothing, nothing but the power of God can save us from the inherent dangers that money and wealth present. So neither James or the rest of the Bible teaches that money and wealth is sinful in and of itself, nor does it condemn people with wealth, but the Bible condemns the love of money the misuse of it, gaining it in an ungodly way, making it the center of our lives and failing to use it for the kingdom of God and to help others. And here in our text, James now denounces wealthy landowners landowners who foolishly hoarded their wealth, abused the power of their wealth, and defrauded and oppressed the poor. In verse 1, James begins by pronouncing their impending judgment. And then in verses 2 through 6, James lays out for us their sins. They hoarded their wealth in verses 2 and 3. They gained it in an ungodly way, verse 4. They spent it self-indulgently, verse 5. And they used it unjustly in verse 6. So let's look now at verse 1 in James' pronouncement of judgment. As he did with the businessmen and uh, the merchants in, in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, James begins by getting their attention with the phrase, Come now, you who say. And in the Greek, this phrase is very, very strong. It's like James is grabbing his readers by the lapels and saying, Now look, you listen to me. Because I have something very important to say which you need to hear. Come now, he says. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James says, now you rich, listen to me, weep and howl. 
The word weep means to sob aloud, to lament, to weep bitterly. It was used of wailing for the dead, but it was also used of weeping for shame or remorse. And the word howl can also be translated wail. It occurs only here in the New Testament. And it was originally used of the cry of joy or rejoicing, but it's also used of of the wail of grief and pain, as it is here. And this, this word goes beyond just weeping or wailing. It is a loud sobbing that is repeatedly pierced by howls or shrieks of agony. And so taken together, weep and howl picture an intense outburst of despairing, violent, uncontrolled agony and grief. But why in the world would James, uh, or why in the world should these men do that? Well, look what James says. For the miseries that are coming upon you. The miseries that are coming upon you. The word translated miseries is only used in the New Testament here. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 16 uh, as a quotation from Isaiah 59 7. And it describes the woe and the misery of the human condition and sin. And as it's used here, it speaks of feelings of wretchedness, overwhelming hardship, trouble, suffering, or distress. The words weep and howl or or wail were often used in the Old Testament by the prophets to describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord or the day of God's judgment arrives. Well, when James tells them to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them, he is speaking about the judgment of God. And he's saying, overwhelming trouble and suffering will be brought upon the unbelieving rich when they stand before the Lord in judgment. In Luke 6, 24 and 25, Jesus warned, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In Luke 16, Jesus told a story that graphically illustrates the terrible judgment that will come upon wealthy unbelievers. Turn, if you will, to Luke 16. You know the story. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. Jesus said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is just another name for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The rich James was addressing were not in misery now. No, they, it was the exact opposite for them now. No, they lived in luxury. They had plenty of everything they wanted. In fact, they had more than they could ever use. But misery was coming upon them. Not earthly suffering, something far worse, eternal suffering. Because they had lived as if there was no God, no judgment, no eternity, no heaven and no hell. But James warns them, misery is coming. In other words, judgment is coming. One commentator shared the story of a godless American farmer who wrote to his local newspaper. This is what he said. I have been conducting an experiment in one of my fields. I have plowed it on Sundays, sowed the seed on Sundays, watered and weeded it on Sundays, and gathered the harvest on Sundays. And I want to tell you that this October I have the finest crop of Indian corn in the whole neighborhood. 
Well, the editor published the letter, but he added this footnote. God does not settle all of his accounts in October. And that's true. God doesn't settle all his accounts in this life. But there is such a thing as the judgment to come. And James calls on the rich to consider the final judgment that was coming and and to tremble in light of that judgment. And the life of luxury they had enjoyed was about to turn into eternal suffering and misery. And now in verses 2 to 6, James lays out their sins. First of all, we see in verses 2 to 3, they hoarded their wealth. Look at verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now the key here is the last sentence in verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And of course, the last days encompasses the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And James' point is that in a time when they should have been preparing themselves for eternity, because the most important thing we have to do in this world and in this life is to prepare for eternity. But instead of preparing for eternity, they had laid up treasure. That is, they had devoted themselves entirely to accumulating more and more and more wealth. In that day, riches or wealth was measured in intangible ways, such as land, flocks and herds. And here in our text, James mentions three others. The first item he mentions is riches. And the word riches can refer to wealth in general, but the fact that James uses the the word rotted tells us that the riches he has in mind are food items, such as grain, oil, wine, fruits, etc. Like the rich fool in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, who said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The people James was addressing foolishly thought that they could amass vast amounts of food. They believed that their hoarded food would then allow them to Take it easy for the rest of their lives, just to relax, eat, drink, be merry for for many, 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 many years. The second James mentions clothing, or garments is the word. And in that day, expensive garments was another measure of wealth. This word garments referred to outer garments, such as robes, mantles, or cloaks. And these items were often decorated with fine jewels, and and they were actually handed down as heirlooms. But it was just as foolish to hoard garments as it was food because they too would not last forever. Look back at verse 2. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. I mean, they had hoarded more expensive clothing than they could ever wear. But the moths got to them. They were moth-eaten and therefore worthless And as one man said, what's the point of feeding moths? You see, even the finest garments owned by the richest man will eventually fall prey to the tiny moth. Wealth in James' day was also measured in precious metals such as gold and silver. But James says your gold and silver have corroded. Now the fact is gold and silver uh, does not corrode or rust. It can become tarnished, but it doesn't rust. And so this tells us that James is speaking figuratively. His point is that even gold and silver, which are thought to be imperishable, uh, you know, imperishable status symbols of wealth, status symbols of wealth, will be as worthless on the day of judgment as a pile of rusty metal. I mean, hoarding possession. Whether it's food, clothing, or money is foolish because no matter how carefully they're accumulated and stored, they are temporal. And they are easily spoiled. So this reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Well, instead of doing what Jesus commanded, these rich people were doing uh, exactly what Jesus had prohibited. They were storing up great treasures for themselves on earth. I mean, they, they were living as if they and the world would go on forever, but they would not. Because there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day of judgment coming. When all of it would be worth absolutely nothing. And that is why the Bible says in Proverbs 11.4, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In Zephaniah 1.18, it says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's why Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, these people were hoarding up wealth instead of preparing to meet their eternal judge. And their hoarded resources, James tells us, would actually testify against them on judgment day. Look back at verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James is saying that on the day of judgment, the worthlessness of the very riches they had focused on and hoarded like gold and silver are going to witness against them. Their hoarded, rotted, moth-eaten, corroded treasures would give graphic testimony to their unbelieving hearts and their idolatrous love of money and wealth. And not only that, James says their corrosion will eat their flesh like fire. But what does that mean? Well, I mean, fire is a devastating power. And at sufficiently high temperatures, it'll consume absolutely everything in its path. And by this phrase, James is referring to the devastating judgment of God that's coming upon them. A judgment they cannot escape. A judgment judgment in which they will be forever condemned to hell where the fire, Jesus says, never goes out. So James says, look, all that money and all all those possessions, all that stuff uh, uh, you bought and, and don't really need, all that stuff you're hoarding, he said it's rotting. You think your investments are wise, James says? They're they're actually wasting away. Moths are eating your clothes. Your gold and silver, which you think is the surest use of money in this world, is wasting away. It's all temporal, all of it. You have hoarded and built bigger barns for all of your excess, ignoring the needs that are all around you. But a day is coming when it's all going to burn up with fire, and James says, and you will burn with it. That's pretty strong. And so he sharply rebukes them for hoarding their wealth instead of what they should be doing, which is preparing for eternity. And so what does this warning mean to us today? Well, first of all, the Bible does not prohibit richly enjoying the things that God has given us. I mean, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So the Bible doesn't prohibit us richly enjoying the things that God has given us. Secondly, the Bible does not discourage wise planning, saving, and providing for your needs and the needs of your family. Saving demonstrates good stewardship of resources provided by God and enables a person to respond to the needs of others. I mean, it assumes that God provides for other people through others. But there is a world of difference between wise saving for the future and the greediness of hoarding. You know, just amassing more and more and more for your own personal pleasure and indulgence. As one man said, the Bible is dead set against the vast accumulation of self-directed wealth focused solely on perpetuating one's own comforts and pleasures. The Bible condemns hoarding. It's a sin because it's an improper use of wealth. Randy Alcorn said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. 
mean, God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. And when we hoard, we are improperly using the wealth that the Lord has given us. And he can just as easily take it away. Secondly, hoarding wealth is a sin because it speaks of a person who finds his satisfaction in things rather than God. And the fact is, you don't have to have a lot of money to fall into that sin. And thirdly, hoarding wealth is a sin because it demonstrates no thought to the fact that one day we're going to give an account to God. And fourthly, hoarding is a sin because it demonstrates a love of money which the scriptures warn leads to a smug dependence upon one's wealth and not God. You see, it is a great mistake to think that there is security and wealth. And Paul, writing to Timothy, said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I mean, riches are uncertain. And add to this the fact that life is brief and we cannot take wealth with us, and and you can see how foolish it is, how utterly foolish it is to live for the things of this world. And as Jesus said about the rich fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? So it is, he said, or so is, he said, the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich farmer's motive in that story, his motives were totally selfish. It was all for himself. When he was hoarding wealth for his own selfish enjoyment, and that is something the Bible denounces in no uncertain terms. It is the hoarding of wealth that is evil. It's the hoarding of wealth that's evil when there are needs that it could have met. Now, I can't give you an amount of money that determines what is saving and and what is hoarding. But hoarding is seen in the attitude that depends on one's resources rather than the Lord. Plus, it's never satisfied with what it has accumulated. You know, I've shared this before, but if someone asked John Rockefeller, who at that, at that time was one of the wealthiest men in the world, he was asked, how much wealth is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more. And that's the spirit of hoarding. You know, just a little more. I need just a little more. I mean, we live in a culture that is extremely wealthy when compared to the rest of the world. And so it behooves us as believers to examine whether or not we are hoarding and sinfully using the resources that God has given us. Secondly, we see in verse 4 that these wealthy individuals James is addressing gained their wealth in an ungodly way by the defrauding of their employees. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Of course, ancient Israel was an agrarian society, and their economy was dependent upon day laborers, which means anyone who works for hire, but here especially agricultural workers. These day laborers were hired by the day to work the fields, cultivate the crops, Mow them, probably referring to cutting the grain at harvest time. And these day laborers were were generally very poor, and they lived hand to mouth, I mean, from day to day. And so they were absolutely dependent upon the wages that they received each day, literally to provide their daily bread, I mean, for themselves and their families. And so this was a matter of their very survival. And in a society where credit was was not readily available, not paying workers each day could actually jeopardize their very lives. And this was so important that Old Testament law required that they be paid at the end of each day. Leviticus 19.13, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. 
Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. I mean, Old Testament law was very clear on this. But the people James is addressing had knowingly ignored God's word. And remember, James was writing to Jewish people in the, in the uh, diaspora. I mean, these, these rich Jewish landowners had abused their power. They, they were oppressing the poor day laborers by withholding their pay. And maybe the wealthy landowners, uh, landowner was keeping their wages until the end of the harvest to keep the, the laborers from leaving. And if the worker protested, the rich man could just blacklist him. I mean, if the laborer went before judges, well, the rich, they had better legal representation. Maybe they kept the wages simply because they could get away with it and because it was profitable to do so. Whatever the reason may have been. It was in total disregard for God and his word, and this kind of injustice displeases God. And what made this sin so egregious is the fact that the owners were doing this at harvest time when their their barns and their vats were full. And James tells them their defrauding of the laborers has become known to God. And he makes it clear that God is holy, powerful, and determined to, to judge them for this grievous sin that was endangering the very lives of the poor workers. Look back at verse 4. He said, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here James personifies the wages of the laborers, and, and he depicts the wages themselves as crying out. And it means to shout or, or to scream. So he's saying, look, the wages that you have withheld from these people are actually screaming out to God, pleading to him for, for help, for vindication. And James also says the cries of the harvesters themselves have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this brings to mind two other biblical examples of the voices of the wronged crying out to God. And the first is where God tells Cain, who had murdered his brother Abel, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And then towards the end of their captivity in Egypt, we're told that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And James has the same picture here. The wages are, are that have been illegally withheld, are, are, are crying out to God. The workers themselves are, are crying out to God. And what a terrifying prospect James is predicting for the ungodly man that he has in mind. They're crying out to the Lord of hosts. That makes it even more terrifying. I mean, the fact that James says God, uh, says the God of, of the cheated and oppressed worker, the, the God the cheated and oppressed workers have cried out to is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, that is, the Lord of the entire universe. I mean, this, this picture is one of awesome power. Because it's describing God as the as a commander of the, the armies of heaven, the host of heaven. He's the one who hears the cries of the defrauded poor, and he's the one who will call his angelic armies to act in judgment. And there's no doubt that James uh, used this title, as someone has suggested, to strike fear into the hearts of those who think that the poor have no protection. 
As Jeremiah said, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So what does this say to us? Well, this passage speaks to both employers and employees. First to employers, this text is a reminder that no activity is outside the sphere of Christ's lordship. And the Word of God insists that employers should treat their employees fairly. That they should never be oppressed or defrauded. And the employees, it says to the employees who, maybe some here who are currently being defrauded or mistreated, this passage is a reminder to you that God is on your side. That God cares about your mistreatment and He is going to hold your oppressors accountable. And how comforting it is to know that that as we face hardship in daily living, we have the complete resources of Almighty God protecting us. I mean, ultimately, none of our hardships can overcome us. Whatever needs we face, we can expect the Lord of hosts to be our helper and to be the source of our strength. Thirdly, we see that Uh, the wealthy spent their wealth self-indulgently. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The word luxury has the basic meaning of softness. It speaks of a life of luxury and and self-indulgence. It's the picture drawn by Jesus of the rich man in Luke 16. We read it a moment ago. It says he was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Never had to worry about what he was going to wear, what he was going to eat. Always had much more than he could ever eat or wear. The second word translated and self-indulgence adds the thought of extravagant, unrestrained self-indulgence. Paul uses this word in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6 when speaking of the widow who lived in self-indulgence, and he said uh, she was dead even as she lived. In other words, her lifestyle proved that she was unregenerate and spiritually dead. Now James is not condemning the simple enjoyment of the material blessings that God has, has given to us. James' point, is that these rich people were selfishly accumulating wealth for themselves and spending it entirely on their own pleasures, their own self-indulgence. And the sad fact is, those with money frequently close their eyes to the needs of others and the work of God, living solely to gratify their selfish, sinful desires. And apart from faith in Christ, According to what James has told us, they face eternal ruin and loss. And look what James says about them in the end of verse 5. He says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The heart is viewed here as desiring luxury and pleasure, and the rich are pictured as giving their hearts everything that they desire. In other words, they just gorged themselves on whatever they desired. Whatever they wanted, they got. They fattened themselves on luxurious, self-indulgent pleasures. And in doing so, James says, they're like cattle being fattened up for the slaughter, and they don't even know it. And when James speaks of the slaughter, he's giving us a frightening picture of God's judgment. And he depicts the rich who have accumulated much wealth for their own self-indulgent pleasures as cattle, cattle who are just out happily just gorging themselves on feed with no idea that their slaughter was at hand. I like what one commentator said. He said, if a steer could think, it might regard itself as fortunate to be indoors surrounded by mounds of hay no longer having to forage for skimpy grass on the hillsides in the rain or in the hot sun, all the while oblivious to its impending doom. 
You see, James is warning these people that they're headed for the slaughterhouse of divine judgment. And apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is the reality that awaits them. And you know, there may be a a few of us who feel that we live in luxury, but for the most part, I doubt anyone here would say that they lived in luxury. So we may be tempted to think that this sin is one that, that hardly applies to us at all. And we don't really see any relevant lesson here for ourselves. But you see, the fact is, self-pleasing self-indulgence can easily creep into all of our lives. As one man said, the man who deals in hundreds can be infected by it just as deeply as the man who deals in tens of thousands. Few things test a man's spirituality more accurately than the way he uses money. To guard against even the beginnings of sin in this area, we need to remember that God gave us wealth for another purpose than to spend it in pleasure. When we're self-indulgent, I mean, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters other than satisfying our pleasure, our desires. You see, there is a very fine line between needs and greeds, between what is necessary and what is indulgent. And we need to be careful that we don't let self-pleasing self-indulgence creep into our own lives. Because you see, worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. Because it is extremely hard to be rich and lowly at the same time. And the use of money and the life of self-pleasing self-indulgence are never very far apart. Fourthly and finally, we see in verse 6 that they used their wealth unjustly. They used it to mistreat and, and to, to mistreat and to murder the righteous. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You read that and it's like, wow, really? I mean, that's sober. Hoarding, fraud, self-indulgence, and now James says they condemned and murdered the righteous person? I mean, are you, seriously? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And this ties in with what James wrote back in chapter 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And when we look at that passage a few weeks ago, I mentioned two biblical accounts of this very thing. One being, uh, if you remember the story of, of the rich king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and Naboth, whom they murdered so that Ahab could add Naboth's one little vineyard to all of his other great possessions. It's the classic example of a man who was covetous, corrupt, and cruel, willing to shed innocent blood in order to satisfy his greedy, selfish desires. And we read about this kind of thing in the news or in the papers and hear about it on the news all the time. And people will kill for far less than a piece of land. Some people believe James could also be speaking of judicial murder. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, Jewish tradition taught that a person could murder another by judicial murder. In other words, by depriving uh, his neighbor of his living. And one of the apocryphal books, the book of Ecclesiasticus, declared, to take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. So the wealthy landowners James is addressing could have been guilty of murder in either sense. And the implication is that the wicked rich were using the courts to judicially murder some of the abused poor. You know, when God established the courts in Israel, he gave the people, or when God established Israel in the land, he gave the people a system of courts. And when he established the court system, he warned the judges not to be greedy. They were not to be partial to the rich or the poor. Judges were not to tolerate perjury. They were not to take a bribe. 
Yet the prophet Amos denounced the judges in his day who were taking bribes and fixing cases. That sounds like something right out of today's news. Apparently, the courts in James' day were easy to control if you had enough money. Now, so tragically, the wicked rich perverted the justice system and then used it against the poor. And the poor couldn't oppose them because they had no way to use the system. They couldn't afford expensive lawsuits, and so they were helpless. And they weren't given justice. Instead, they were abused and ruined, even murdered, literally and or judicially. I mean, the rich have often been ruthless in their treatment of others because they do whatever they see as advantageous to acquire more for themselves. It's all about themselves. And James tells us here the righteous person did not resist them. I mean, he couldn't prevail in court. And as a believer, a righteous person, so we know he was a believer, so as a righteous person, he refused to respond to violence, or with violence. He refused to respond with violence. What did he do? Well, he followed the example of Jesus, who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So you come to verse 6, at the end of verse 6, and it's like, whew. I mean, James has had some very strong, scathing words for the wealthy. Words of condemnation for unbelievers and words of very serious warning for believers. And again, James is not condemning wealth or the wealthy. He is not condemning working hard, making a profit, providing for our families. He is not condemning saving and planning for the future or enjoying the things that God has given us. What James and the Word of God condemns is the love of money and the misuse of it. I mean, wealth may be a blessing. You know, a gift from God which gives us the opportunity to do good, but that can only be true of those who are also rich in faith and rich toward God, as Jesus said in Luke 12. I mean, if wealth is to be a source of blessing and not condemnation, it must not be selfishly hoarded, gained in an ungodly way, spent self-indulgently, and used unjustly. So before we shrug our shoulders at this warning and pretend it doesn't apply to us because we're not rich, as I said earlier, Uh, it's safe to say that in comparison to the rest of the world, we are all wealthy. All of us. And so we ought to be very, very careful. Very careful how we obtain wealth. Very careful how we use it. Because wealth that is hoarded will testify against us in the day of judgment, and we certainly cannot take our wealth with us. But we can lay up treasure in heaven. However, we cannot store up lasting treasure on earth. And so in light of what we've learned today, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live? Well, we find God's wisdom with regard to money in Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Why don't you turn there quickly? You know, these lights make it hard for me to see who's here. I love to hear that sound, rustling pages. We have the ushers take the vacuum afterwards to vacuum up all the gold that came off the edges. (laughs) Just kidding. No gold dust here. 
So how are we supposed to live? Well, God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom, but God's wisdom regarding money is given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verses 6 through 10, godly wisdom, this is godly wisdom for those who want to become rich. This is what Paul says. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So that's God's wisdom for those who want to become rich. And then godly wisdom for the rich is this. Verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty or not to be proud. Not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So how should we live? Well, godly wisdom says Christians are to be content And we're to use our wealth in three ways, to meet basic needs for food and covering, to enjoy, and then to be generous to others so that we're storing up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for our eternal future. Or as Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know, so many people in our society today are intent on accumulating all the possessions that they can and they're they're just totally oblivious to the fact that we're living in the last days and the judgment is indeed coming. And of course, worldly wisdom manifests itself in amassing, hoarding, and trusting in one's money and other financial resources rather than loving and trusting God. But as believers, we need to be careful that we don't become infected with with that worldly attitude. We need to be careful that we don't get caught up in the same pursuits, acquiring all that we can while ignoring the fact that we're living in the last days. And so what do we do? Well, we have to constantly be submitting our lives to the, to the searching light of God's Word. You know, asking Him to search our hearts to see if there is any wicked way within us. And we should regularly ask ourselves, you know, do I hoard? Am I guilty of over-accumulating wealth? Have I ever or am I now defrauding anyone? And you know, defrauding someone can be done in more ways than simply withholding wages. It can be done by providing inferior products and poorer service than was promised. It can be done by delaying payment for long periods of time. And this has become almost standard practice of large corporations and companies who purposefully delay paying their bills for 90 to 120 days or more. Why? Well, they do it simply because they can get away with it and because it's profitable to do so. They get the float on it for all that time at the expense of the person that it's owed to. And so we should ask ourselves, have I ever or am I now defrauding someone? You know, we should also ask, is there financial deception in my life? Have I given in to the culture's self-indulgence? Are there less than Christian excesses in my life? And then we should ask ourselves, what will our wealth say about us when we stand before Christ? 
Will it rise uh, and give testimony against us? Or will it show that we use godly wisdom and we lived according to God's word and we stored up treasure in heaven? What will our wealth say about us when we stand before Christ? You see, you either trust in money that you see now or in the Lord that you're going to see one day. And if you trust in the Lord, then you'll be a good steward of the money and possessions that he has entrusted to you. I mean, because he owns it all. And we forget that. It all belongs to him. And we must give an account of him, to him, of how we have used it. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the parable, kind of a strange parable, of a dishonest manager. And you know the story. This, this manager was about to be fired because of mismanagement. And so what did he do? Well, he shrewdly called in all of his master's debtors, and he reduced the amount they all owed. And Jesus' point was not that we should be corrupt in order to get ahead. That's not the point. Rather, his point was that we should imitate this godless man who thought in advance about his future and used what he had to make provision for himself. We should use the unrighteous wealth, as Jesus called it in that parable, that we now have to make friends so that when it fails, they will receive us into eternal dwellings, Jesus said in verse 9 of 16. In other words, you can use your money that will be taken away to bring people to Christ, which can never be taken away. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And in the context, the very little thing is money. It's a big thing to us. I mean, it's a, little, it's a big thing to us, but to God, it's a little thing that he uses as the litmus test to prove whether you're being faithful with, you'll, you will be faithful with more important things. And if you're not faithful in that little thing, you won't be faithful in anything else. And in the context, the much refers to eternal souls. So if you want God to entrust true spiritual riches to you, prove yourself by being faithful in managing the finances that he has entrusted to you. That's the lesson of the parable. A businessman once had an angel. Obviously, this is a fictitious story. <laughs> A businessman once had an angel visit him, and he promised that he would grant him one request. And so the man took him up on it, and he asked for a copy of the stock market page one year in the future. And as he was studying the numbers on the futures exchange and, and gloating over how much he was going to make because of his knowledge of the future, his eyes glanced across the page. And what did he see? His picture was in the obituary column. And so suddenly his new wealth faded into absolute insignificance in light of his own death. I mean, wealth is a good tool if we're careful to use it as stewards for the Lord. But it's a dangerous trap if we adopt a worldly perspective toward it. And so I would encourage us all to often examine our stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to us. And we should remember Paul's words. It is required of stewards that they be found, what? Faithful. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Free. And Lord, give to 
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Growing